the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later in the program, we're going to hear from Hank Hanegraaff. He's the author of Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Life. That's coming up in the second hour. We'll also review Amazon's new Lord of the Rings series. Um, Some are suggesting it defiles Tolkien's masterpiece. We'll offer something of a review. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, I have to say it's been very difficult today to sit at my desk with the news running um, from the time I sit down until the time I get up and come into this studio covering what's happening in Ukraine. Now, this isn't the only place in the world where there is violence, but this is a place that we have been connected to. We've made promises to as a nation uh, and we're watching it unfold. We had the capacity to do well something, maybe not prevent it altogether. And we still have the capacity to perhaps have some impact on what happens over the next few weeks and months. We don't know what the outcome will be, but it is very sobering to consider that in a moment uh, we could be on uh, the uh, the cusp of a new Cold War. World War Three, as some are suggesting, I don't want to overstate what's happened there thus far. But according to what Vladimir Putin has been saying, that may well be what he has in mind, reconstituting the USSR, perhaps not in its entirety, but uh, much of what was lost at the end of the uh, of the Cold War. I want to get into that in just a few minutes. But before I do, I wanted to bring you some Good news. It comes out of the state of Oregon. It might be late news, but it's good news. We've just learned that Oregon is going to lift its mask mandates on March the 19th for indoor public spaces and schools. That's 12 days earlier than previously scheduled. The original date was March the 31st. That's according to state officials. Now, I know some of us are rolling our eyes thinking, well, that's that's quite late. But the truth is it's going to happen, we're being told. And the official emergency that requires us to wear these masks in places we might prefer not to have to will be lifted. Well, in a press release, the Oregon Health Authority said the original date was chosen because that was when the state's hospitalization levels were projected to have declined to a pre-Omicron level of fewer than 400 COVID-19 patients at a time. Well, hospitalization rates have declined faster than expected, the agency said, and are already down 48 percent from the peak of 1,030, actually 1,130 in late January. The latest modeling from Oregon Health and Sciences University projects that Oregon will reach the 400 patient threshold around the 20th of March. Well, new daily reported infections have also plummeted in Oregon from the peak to the current numbers today. New cases were hovering at around 800 per day before the Omicron surge began in December. According to the Oregon health officer and state epidemiologist, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, he says we are able to take this important step earlier than anticipated because of the collective diligence and shared sacrifice that people in Oregon have demonstrated and getting vaccinated, wearing masks and limiting their gatherings. Well, the move brings Oregon's timeline more in line with Washington Governor Jay Inslee, 
announcing last week that his state indoor mask mandate will be uh, it will expire on the 21st. Now, someone told me at the time, I predict that Oregon's governor is going to try to, to beat Washington. And that's precisely what happened by a day or two. Oregon Governor Kate Brown also announced on Thursday that she would lift the state's COVID emergency declaration on April 1st. Well, lifting Oregon's COVID-19 emergency declaration does not mean that the pandemic is over or that COVID-19 is no longer a significant concern, she said in her statement. But as we have shown through the Delta and Omicron surges, as we learn to live with this virus and with so many Oregonians protected by safe and effective vaccines, we are now uh, can now protect ourselves, our friends and our families without invoking the extraordinary emergency authorities that were necessary at the beginning of the pandemic. Most of Oregon's original pandemic emergency measures were lifted in June of last year as vaccines became widely available and case levels receded. But the mask mandates were reinstated in August when the more transmissible Delta variant arrived. Now, once again, we are being told that the uh, mask mandate will lift in Oregon on March the 19th. That's for indoor public spaces and schools 12 days earlier than previously scheduled. So that's good news for Oregonians who have felt claustrophobic for a couple of years. So there you have it. Well, once again, returning to um, the saga in Ukraine, some of the headlines that I've been reading today, Russia attacks Ukraine on broad front. Biden hits Moscow with new sanctions. Airstrikes target dozens of cities. Biden aims sanctions at Russia, uh, Russian military banks, elites. Ukraine's invasion is uh, Putin's boldest move yet to restore Russia's place in the world. Russia's invasion of Ukraine forces military reckoning on Eastern Europe. Ukraine under fire, hiding in basements, helicopters overhead. And we've seen images of those helicopters in these areas, these um, areas where people are living. Some of the other headlines, Putin nuke warning. We'll talk about that threat uh, in just a moment, countdown to World War II, World War Three, a uh, Moscow to decapitate leaders. Ukraine fights back. Oil breaks one hundred dollars. Battle for new world order. Some other headlines. Troops raise Russian flag in Ukraine. Chernobyl power plant captured. Kremlin demands Kiev surrender. Warns West of consequences greater than any in history. And some interpret that to mean the use either of some sort of um, massive cyber attack or the use of nuclear weapons. Zelensky says serious losses as airstrikes hit 25 cities. Calls on citizens to fight, promises weapons. Battle for air base, which would give uh, Russia access to Kiev and um, aircraft. Many flee to Poland. Baltics are next. Are we next? Authorities additional troops to Germany to bolster defenses. And finally, Reds, China nods to Russia interest. Some of the headlines that we've been reading today as Russia invaded Ukraine. It's the largest European attack since World War II. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine by land, sea and air in largest uh, in the largest attack on European soil since the Second World War. And the forces invaded much of the uh, the city by uh, all three um uh, versions of attack. Well, the wide-ranging attack on Ukraine hit cities and bases with airstrikes or shelling. Civilians piled into trains and cars to flee uh, the country. The government said Russian tanks and troops rolled across the border in a full-scale war that could rewrite the geopolitical order. Well, after several hours of fierce battle, Russian forces seized control of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, and Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky's earlier Thursday raised concerns of repeated um, the 1986 disaster and perhaps um, the remnants being scattered all across Europe 
uh, as it's not clear what the status is of the uh, nuclear fallout there at Chernobyl. There's much more to uh, to review. We'll talk about that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about the conflict in Ukraine as Russia has invaded the country and there's no question about it being an incursion it was an invasion and it continues no one knows how far uh, vladimir putin intends to go but he has said he intends to decapitate the government there not literally perhaps but certainly to try them in quotes uh, and uh, to get them out of uh, out of power i noted one list that put this into perspective why ukraine matters to not just the ukrainians whose lives are worth um, everything in the world But some of the other things to consider, it's the second largest country by area in Europe. Um, It has a population of over 40 million more than Poland. Ukraine ranks first in Europe in proven recoverable uh, reserves of Ukrainian ores, second place in Europe and 10th place in the world in terms of titanium ore reserves, second place in the world in terms of explored reserves of manganese ores, um, 2.3 billion tons or 12 percent of the world's reserves. Two, um, second largest iron ore reserve in the world, 30 billion tons. Second place in Europe in terms of mercury ore reserves. Third place in Europe, 13th place in the world in shale gas reserves. Fourth place in the world by total value of natural resources. Seventh place in the world in coal reserves. Ukraine is an important agricultural country. It's first in Europe in terms of uh, arable land area, third place in the world by area of black soil, 25% of the world's volume, first place in the world in exports of sunflower and sunflower oil, second place in the world in barley production, and fourth place in barley exports, third largest producer and fourth largest exporter of corn in the world, fourth largest producer of potatoes in the world, fifth largest rye producer in the world, fifth uh, place in the world in bee production, seven. 75,000 tons, eighth place in the world in wheat exports, ninth place in the world in the production of chicken eggs, 16th place in the world in cheese exports. Ukraine can meet the food needs of 600 million people. It's an important industrialized country, first in Europe in ammonia production, Europe's second and world's fourth largest natural gas pipeline system, third largest in Europe and eighth largest in the world in terms of installed capacity of nuclear power plants, third place in Europe and 11th in the world in terms of rail network length, third place in the world after the U.S. and France in production of locators and locating equipment, third largest iron exporter in the world, fourth largest exporter of turbines for nuclear power plants in the world, fourth world's largest manufacturer of rocket launchers, fourth place in the world in clay exports, fourth place in the world in titanium exports, eighth place in the world in exports of ores and concentrates, ninth place in the world in exports of defense industry products, 10th largest steel producer in the world, uh, 32.4 million tons. Ukraine matters, and that's why its independence is important to the rest of the world. Now, that is putting the people behind all of that, but I'm just trying to provide a, uh, a broader context. Certainly the people who reside there, who live and work there, matter more than all of that, but again, putting it into some context. Well, as mentioned earlier, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the largest European attack since World War II, and there's reason to be very concerned. In addition to Ukraine, there have been references to other countries that Vladimir Putin would very much like to regain, including Finland. 
you might recall there's a border between Russia and Finland, and Russia would very much like to restore what they believe was historic part of the Russian territory. Well, Russian forces uh, captured the Chernobyl nuclear power plant after a battle in the nuclear exclusion zone on Thursday evening. That's local time, Ukrainian officials say. An advisor to Ukraine's office of the president confirmed that the reactor was in Russian hands. I'm not sure why they would want it or if they'll treat it appropriately. There's some concern about whether or not um, uh, radioactive material will now be circulating through uh, Europe. Ukrainian officials warned earlier that damage to nuclear storage facilities could send radioactive dust across Europe. Russian occupation forces are trying to seize the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Ukrainian President Zelensky said in a Twitter post, our defenders are giving their lives so that the tragedy of 1986 will not be repeated. This is a declaration of war against the whole of Europe, end quote. Well, the Chernobyl reactor was the site of the worst nuclear disaster in history when the core of the reactor melted down. An advisor to Ukraine's ministry, ministry rather, of the interior wrote on Facebook that Russian forces had moved to Chernobyl from Belarus, Ukraine's northern neighbor. National Guard troops responsible for protecting the storage unit for dangerous uh, radioactive waste are putting up fierce resistance. He wrote in an English translation posted in the New York Times, if an explosion punctures the encasement of the reactor, radioactive dust could cover the territory of Ukraine, Belarus, and the countries of the European Union. Well, later on Thursday, he also confirmed that Russian forces had captured the Anatov Airport, an international cargo airport several miles outside of Kiev. Russian forces landed at the airport earlier on Thursday with the intent of flying more troops in. The attack on Chernobyl came amid a Russian invasion of Ukraine from the north, the east, and the southern Crimean Peninsula. It is on. Well, as mentioned, Russian offensives in Ukraine appears to be the beginning of a large-scale invasion aimed at taking down the capital city of Kiev. The officials uh, are describing three main axes of uh, assault, including uh, what looks to be a strong push toward the capital. It's our assessment, and this is a quote from an official, uh, it's our assessment that they have every intent of basically decapitating the government, uh, specifying that they're making a move on Kiev, the capital city. The official didn't predict that, um, or rather did predict, that the war is expected to be very bloody, very costly, and very impactful on European security writ large, perhaps for a long, long time to come. The U.S. has observed Ukrainians fighting back, particularly in the city of uh, Kharkiv, but also around the airport of Kiev. The Ukrainian military claims that they have taken down a number of Russian jets, but the official could not confirm this. Vladimir Putin, a Russian president, has uh, threatened that any country that intervenes will face repercussions, and this is a, an exact quote, never seen in history, leading to speculation that this was a threat of nuclear response. The senior defense official said that while the U.S. does not know in uh, perfect detail what Russia is planning, they don't see an increased threat in this regard. Let's hope they're right. The U.S. is sending military assistance to the region but will not be entering Ukraine itself. While F-35 aircraft is being sent to Estonia, Romania, Lithuania, expected to arrive later on Thursday, the Biden administration has repeatedly insisted the U.S. troops will not be fighting in Ukraine. What we are committed to doing is protecting members of NATO. Similarly, on Thursday, NATO's secretary general Describe defense forces that are at the ready to defend NATO members if necessary, but there has been no talk of entering Ukraine, which is not part of NATO. I think it's interesting to 
consider how Ukraine was betrayed in Budapest. Part of the reason that this has happened in 2022 is what happened back in Budapest when Ukraine um, yielded to pressure from other nations. Kyiv gave up uh, its nuclear weapons in return for security assurances. Well, so much for that. Well, as a, the people of Ukraine steel themselves for the Russian attack that's now underway, it's worth recalling how the U.S. persuaded the country to give up its nuclear weapons. Now, the event was the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, in which the U.S., Great Britain, and Russia offered security assurances to the nation that had won independence when the Soviet Union dissolved. Now, note the U.S., Great Britain, and Russia. Now, that was the um, halcyon post-Cold War era when history had supposedly ended. Some 1,800 nuclear weapons were on Ukrainian territory, including short-range tactical weapons and air-launched cruise missiles. The U.S. wanted fewer countries to have fewer nukes, and U.S. credibility was at its peak. That's no longer the case. The idea was, you get rid of your nukes, we'll take care of you. The memo begins with the U.S., U.K., and Russia noting that Ukraine had committed to eliminate all nuclear weapons from its territory within a specified period of time. Then the three countries confirm a half dozen commitments to Ukraine. Commitments on paper, but not necessarily on the ground. The most important was to uh, reaffirm their obligation to refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine. They also pledged to refrain from economic coercion against Ukraine and to seek immediate United Nations Security Council action to provide assistance to Ukraine in the event of an act of aggression against the country. Ukraine had returned all of the nuclear weapons to Russia by 1996. Now that could have served as a deterrent at the time. It was no longer a possibility. Ukraine had been unarmed, and the idea was that they were to be protected from aggression or economic pressure. Well, Vladimir Putin made the Budapest Memorandum a dead letter with his first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But the betrayal of Budapest isn't forgotten in Kiev by President Zelensky, noting bitterly in weekend remarks in Munich. Budapest shows again the folly of trusting parchment promises in a world where autocrats think um, uh, might makes right. More damaging is the messaging that nations give up their nuclear arsenal at their peril. That's the lesson North Korea has learned, and Iran is following the same playbook as it uh, connives to build the bomb, even as it promises not to do so. The inability of the U.S. to enforce its Budapest commitments will also echo in allied capitals that rely on America's military assurances. Don't be surprised if Japan and South Korea seek their own nuclear deterrence. If Americans want to know why we should care about Ukraine, nuclear proliferation is one reason. Betrayal has consequences, as the world seems destined to learn again the hard way. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about what's happening in Ukraine Uh, Urging people to pray, to be aware, and uh, to encourage our leaders to do the right thing, whatever that might be. The editorial board of the Wall Street Journal pointed out that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine early Thursday marks the failure of Western deterrence and a return to the age of authoritarian conquest. I even heard the phrase used an axis of authoritarianism referring to Russia and China. Now we'll see if Europe and the U.S. awaken from their illusion of eternal post-Cold War peace and security 
to address the New World disorder. They go on to write, the first step is admitting the colossal Western misjudgment that Mr. Putin could be appeased. He snatched part of Georgia in 2008 and the world did little. He grabbed Crimea in 2014 and Barack Obama said there would be costs and Russia was isolated. But Western sanctions were weak. Europe watched this aggression and still made itself hostage to Russian energy supplies and blackmail. Europeans of all people... Uh, forgot their own history of the 1930s. Mr. Putin also meddled in U.S. elections and sanctioned cyber attacks on the U.S. homeland. But the U.S. tore itself up with a false Russia collusion narrative. No wonder Mr. Putin thinks that adding Ukraine back into greater Russia is worth the risks. He's betting on more appeasement after the fall of Kiev and the installment of a puppet government. What to do now? Well, the first and overriding priority is to make Mr. Putin pay a severe price for launching this war. This means helping Ukraine resist the initial invasion and to insist, assist rather an insurgency if Russia attempts an occupation. Mr. Obama refused to give Ukraine lethal weapons after the Crimea and Donbass invasions in 2014. Donald Trump sent javelin anti-tank weapons, but the U.S. failure to do more for the Ukrainian military before this invasion has been shameful. Again, reading from the Wall Street Journal, NATO could give the Zelensky government in Ukraine whatever it needs for self-defense, conventional weapons to destroy tanks, helicopters, ships will help as long as Ukraine's military keeps fighting. Communications equipment to show the world what's happening is critical in the digital age. An insurgency will be harder to sustain than many in the West think given uh, Russia's brutal methods. But the West should help whoever is willing to fight with intelligence, explosives, and other weapons. And occupation uh, with steady Russian casualties would erode Mr. Putin's support at home. And they go on from there, but it does raise um, some important points about how we got to this pass, beginning at the end of the Cold War and the forgetfulness. A little later in the article, they write, the larger meaning of Russia's Ukraine invasion is that the world has entered a dangerous new era. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say the world has returned to its pre-World War II state in which the strong take advantage of the weak and authoritarians are on the march. The post-Cold War uh, order has depended on U.S. economic and military power, not on the illusion that the international community can enforce world order. Could there be a better display of United Nations impotence than Russia presiding on Wednesday over the Security Council session on Russia's invasion? Think about that for a moment. Mr. Biden and his advisors continue to believe in this community of nations fantasy, but this is a time for sturdier alliances of conviction and interests. If Mr. Putin, Putin rather, consolidates control in Kiev, he can surely increase the threats against NATO border countries. The alliance will have to fortify its eastern front, and Europe in particular will have to rearm. The political war on fossil fuels needs to end. Some Americans will want to concede Russia this sphere of influence and say it's Europe's problem. But a world in which Russia dominates Eastern and Central Europe, Iran dominates the Middle East, and China dominates East Asia will not be safe for U.S. interests. Regional powers have a habit of becoming global threats, especially when they work in concert, as Russia, China, and Iran are already doing. We can debate if Mr. Biden's weakness on Afghanistan caused Mr. Putin to believe he could invade Ukraine, but you fight a new Cold War with the president you have. Mr. Biden now has to rally the world and the American people, the American public, to understand the stakes in Ukraine and counter the rapid increasing threats of America. I appreciated what they said about the president. We can debate if Mr. Biden's weakness on Afghanistan emboldened Mr. Putin to believe he could invade Ukraine. But this is what I, I think we need to embrace. You fight a new Cold War with the president you have. 
Mr. Biden now has to rally the world and the American public. He is the president we have. And I hope, as always is the case, you are praying for him that he would gain wisdom in what to do uh, in this situation. As I'm praying for Vladimir Putin, that the Lord would slap him out of his delusion and he would humble himself. Well, as Russia continued its invasion of Ukraine on Thursday, anti-war protesters in the cities across Russia were being arrested by the hundreds by police. Now, Reuters reported as uh, of early evening that some 549 people had been arrested in 39 cities across Russia for protesting the invasion. Uh, Russia, under President Vladimir Putin, has been uh, known for detaining anti-government protesters in large numbers. CNN reported live from Moscow on Thursday as soon as those arrests were happening. There isn't so much of a central uh, protest here. There are some leaders here in this central area of Moscow. This was Nick Robertson reporting from CNN live in Moscow. While we've been here for the last 45 minutes, another person is being dragged out of the subway there, being dragged by the police, being arrested, pressed up against the vehicle. We've seen dozens of people being arrested here over the last 45 minutes. Now, some have hoped for a groundswell of opposition to Vladimir Putin. His opponents have a way of being silenced, disappearing, being poisoned and imprisoned. So in order to do that, you take significant risks. But there is a hope that as casualties, uh, if casually casualties were to mount, that the people of Russia would turn on their president, that he would overextend himself and find that um, uh, the people are no longer willing to allow him to be the ruler. Now, that's easier said than actually carried out, given the form of government uh, that he oversees. Well, as mentioned, the president announced the president of the United States has announced more U.S. troops to Germany and additional sanctions over the Russian invasion. President Vladimir Putin threatened consequences you may uh, you have never seen to any country that ties, uh, tries to interfere. The U.S. and its allies have condemned Russia. They're imposing more sanctions after Moscow launched the attack on Ukraine. Now, some are interpreting that threat to mean nuclear uh, the use of nuclear weaponry. Some are suggesting this would be a cyber attack that would exceed anything we've seen in the past. We don't really know, but that is an ominous threat. Well, the president stopped short of sanctioning Putin himself, which some argue should have been the starting point. He does not announce a ban on Russian on Russia from the SWIFT banking system. Well, the president announced new sanctions uh, over its multi-front war in Ukraine and 7,000 more U.S. service members have been uh, flown to Germany. But the president did stop short. In orders from Russian President Vladimir Putin, troops began attacking Ukraine overnight on Wednesday. The president of the United States said Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequence. Now, some are wondering what that consequence will be and if it's sufficient to reverse course. Well, the president said the sanctions in coordination with a coalition of other nations would target more major Russian banks, including VTB, Sparebank, a bank well, I won't even attempt to pronounce them all. My Russian is a bit rusty. The sanctions will make um, make it harder for Russia to do business in dollars, euros, pounds and yen. And there will be uh, new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. Uh, the sanctions will also target Russian elites. And there's a list of, of names. Uh, these are the oligarchs that for whom this will matter. The sanctions will also limit the borrowing opportunities for 13 Russian entities and enterprises, according to the U.S., Uh, The president said he believes Russia has much larger ambitions than Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. America stands up to bullies, he says. We stand up for freedom. This is who we are. Liberty, democracy, human dignity. These are the forces far more powerful than fear and oppression. He uh, went on to say, make no mistake, freedom will prevail. Well, the 
whether or not that is the case will determine will be determined by what the United States does in order to stand for the freedom of those currently under attack. The president spoke with G7 leaders this morning before his speech, saying allies are in full and total agreement. Now, that's good news, but full and total agreement without actions that represent this commitment um, will mean very little to what's happening in Ukraine. Well, again, I wanted to talk a bit about the reasons why Americans should care about the situation there. Ukraine has been front page news for the past few weeks. Uh, What began with President Putin moving large numbers of forces to Ukraine's border deteriorated even further this past weekend. Well, currently, Ukraine is uh, completely surrounded by nearly 200,000 Russian troops with a threat of others to enter the country. And Russia is sending troops into parts of Ukraine's uh, eastern region. But why should America care about what's happening in Ukraine halfway across the world? Well, they should care for a few important reasons. Number one, increased energy prices. Now, this is solely self-interest. And I would say this would come underneath the the value of the lives of the people of Ukraine. Uh, But a further Russian invasion of the country could continue to put pressure on energy markets globally and in the U.S. And in fact, that is virtually guaranteed. Oil and natural gas prices are a multi-year highs for America's. Uh, driving up costs for heat, for power, for transportation, gasoline, for example, diesel prices in the U.S. are the highest they've been since September of 2014. The West Texas intermediate price per barrel of oil cracked ninety six dollars on the 22nd, the highest it's been in seven years. And I'm reading headlines today that suggest it's reached one hundred dollars. Violent spillover onto uh, NATO allies, which would involve uh, NATO countries. With boots on the ground, Americans should care because if a major war breaks out in Ukraine, it could spill over into neighboring countries. Wars, by their nature, are messy. They're rarely uh, respectful of political borders. And this could have an enormous economic impact on the United States, not to mention the lives of those in those areas. Another uh, reason we should be concerned, sovereignty, secure borders and self-defense. Now, while our own border to the south is not secure and there seems to be very little concern about that, Americans should care because of what it's uh, referred to as the three S's, sovereignty, secure borders and self-defense. Those uh, these pertain to Ukraine just as much as they pertain to the United States. And finally, Putin's invasion undermines democracy. Americans should care about the situation in Ukraine because Putin has been uh, doing everything he can to undermine our interests for more than 20 years. He's been in power over Russia. Ukraine has expressed a desire to emulate the U.S., has put in place a working democracy, and we should care about that. What happens in Ukraine will affect us all. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Hank Hanegraaff, author of Truth Matters, Life Matters More. We'll also review Amazon's new Lord of the Rings series. Not so favorably, I'm sad to say. Anyway, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, reporters today were quick to call out the contradiction between the president's claim that no expected sanctions about Russia to uh, to work um, and his administration's previous position against the uh, the country. Although he announced new sanctions on top of previous ones against Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine, the president later admitted that no one expected the sanctions to prevent the invasion. No one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from the from happening, he said. This could take time and we have to show resolve. So he knows what's coming. And so the people of Russia know what he's brought on them. This is what 
uh, this is all about. It was a little bit of a confusing and discouraging statement. Well, this went against the uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, comments on Sunday that claimed the purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. Well, on the 11th of this month, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan similarly claimed that the sanctions are intended to deter. Well, other reporters brought up that um, change when reporting on Biden's comments. New York Times correspondent Michael Shear tweeted, On February 11th, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, said that the president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. Today, the president told us no one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. Those are basically the opposite of each other. Well, a fellow New York Times reporter, Maggie Haberman, uh, agreed uh, by commenting shades of what was said after Afghanistan and before it. So a little bit of confusion as to what these sanctions are intended to do or not do. Meanwhile, volunteers with the civilian rescue organization Project Dynamo have started evacuating Americans from Ukraine on the heels of the Russian army's invasion in the country. A bus and two cars carrying about a dozen Americans departed from Kiev just after the first explosion in the city and after reports of Russian troops and armor crossing the Belarus border. Uh, the project's uh, volunteer and spokesman, James Judge, reports now they felt the explosion. Judge says they reported that they've seen missiles fly over. Judge said the Dynamo convoy took an alternate route out of Kiev to avoid the largest traffic snarls, but that route took them uh, through some difficult countryside terrain marked by muddy roads and large potholes. At least one of the Dynamo vehicles was temporarily stuck. It hasn't uh, been without its challenges. Well, they said that they didn't uh, know if the Dynamo convoy has encountered any Russian troops. That's not known at this point. But Project Dynamo is one of the dozens of civilian groups that organized last summer to help rescue Americans and American allies from Taliban control in Afghanistan. Leaders of the privately funded group began preparing for potential operations in Ukraine as tension rose there. In mid-February, the U.S. government warned Americans to evacuate the country and warned that the U.S. military was not prepared to rescue Americans who failed to make the responsible choice to flee before the Russian invasion. Hmm. Well, Putin first became president in 2000 and has served since 2012 after a brief stint as prime minister. Well, national security correspondent Jennifer Griffin, who is one of the best um, on the subject, Uh, has the latest from the Pentagon on special report in which she reports that the Russian president incursion into the country is the latest instance of destabilizing or oppressive behavior at home and abroad by the authoritarian strongman who's managed to shrug off pushback and denunciation from foes in his more than 20 years in power. Putin announced Monday, as you probably know, that he was recognizing the independence of two regions of eastern Ukraine, a pretext to enter those areas with greater numbers. They were already there. A move followed up by troop deployments that the White House declared to be the beginning of the anticipated incursion, later invasion of the country. Well, the move led to sanctions from the U.S. and its allies in Europe, Sanctions light, as well as uh, outrage and fears of a war of the kind Europe has not seen on its soil since the 1940s. British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace described Putin as having gone at full tanto on Wednesday. Not really sure what he meant by that, but you can probably do better than I did. Well, the president has uh, was similarly outraged, but the aggressive behavior is in line with the Russian leader's previous misdeeds during his time in power, which have long been recognized by hawks in the U.S. And the late uh, Senator John McCain once declared Putin a thug and a murderer and a killer and a KGB agent, end quote. Well, the incursions into Ukraine is not Putin's first move into disputed territory with a number of aggressive incidents in the last two years. 
even as those moves threaten Europe, uh, European stability, and that Putin himself appeared to explain his motivation from, uh, for some years. At the 2007 Munich Security Conference, Putin asserted that he did not support NATO enlargement and that the Western values are not their values. The ambassador, a former uh, undersecretary of state for global affairs and now senior fellow at the Harvard University Belfar Center for Science and International Affairs, uh, said this. He also stated that he would come to the defense of Russians living anywhere whose rights were in jeopardy. Again, the pretext for entering or in this case, reentering Ukraine. A year later, in 2008, Russia invaded Georgia on a similar pretext to this week's incursion, support of separatist governments in a territory beyond its borders. International condemnation did not appear to shift Putin's thinking on the matter, and Russia suffered few international consequences as a result. A ceasefire was ultimately negotiated that was widely seen as benefiting Moscow. And that same pattern is uh, expected this time around unless Western powers do something different. Then in 2014, Putin seized the Crimea Peninsula from Ukraine after the country's pro-Russian government was toppled by mass protests and replaced by a more pro-EU administration. Well, Putin and the Russian government had long made claims that the peninsula was rightfully Russian and moved in to secure the area. A disputed independence referendum soon followed. The latter invasion was widely seen as the uh, the nail in the coffin for the Russian reset, a policy by the Obama administration to reset hostile relations with Moscow. And that famously saw then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton present Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov with a plastic red button. Outside of Europe, Putin's Russia would later go on to put boots on the ground in Syria to preserve its access and interests there as well. Dobryansky said that the move into uh, eastern Ukraine this week is part of that broader aggression and noted that it violates international agreements, including the 1994 Budapest Mem- Memorandum we talked about earlier in the program, which included provisions that Ukraine would surrender its nuclear weapons, but would also guarantee Ukraine's territorial integrity. Well, Putin's recognition of Donsk and Luhansk as uh, independent states uh, is a clear act of aggression. It violates the sanctity of various international laws, including the Helensky Treaty and the Budapest Memorandum. Putin's goal has been to challenge and diminish American power and influence worldwide to fragment our allies and partnerships. And so far, he seems to have um, produced agreement in NATO, but very little action. While citizens in Western countries largely take freedom of speech and open criticism of their government leaders for granted, in Putin's Russia, that is not the case. The arrest that I described earlier, one example. Well, Putin's regime has long a long story of suppressing protests and keeping restrictions on journalistic freedom, particularly those who oppose the Russian government. NBC News reported in October that Moscow's been cranking up its repression by using laws passed in 2012 to regulate the activities of foreign agents. Meanwhile, opposition leader Alexei Navalny was jailed last year and it's current, uh, currently on trial for fraud after he returned to Russia after months of treatment for a near fatal poison attack that he has blamed on Moscow. Putin's government subsequently banned any political organization linked to Navalny by branding them extremist. Well, anti-regime protests have for years been met by extreme force by Russian police with arrest powers used broadly. One prominent case was the response of a a girl group, their protests in 2013, which humanitarian groups noted were followed by the imprisonment of the the band members and laws that brought hefty fines for public protests. 
Well, Putin's suppression of opposition has not been limited to those within Russia. In addition to Navalny's claim that he was poisoned abroad was due to Moscow's uh, command, there have been other incidents of dissidents being attacked even when outside of Russia. In 2006, you might remember uh, Alexander Letvin, Letvinenko, uh, an ex-Russian intelligence officer who defected was poisoned in London. In 2018, the Russian government poisoned Sergei Skripal, a, a former Russian military officer and double agent who had been jailed by Russia by re- but released as part of a spy swap and his daughter, Yulia of Salisbury, England. And while both targets survived, a British woman who encountered the poison after it had been disposed subsequently died. Interference in other countries' um, elections is another way that... Uh, Vladimir Putin has acted out, if you will. U.S. intelligence organizations have accused Putin of meddling in U.S. elections, specifically 2016 and 2020, the presidential elections, aiming to hurt the Democrats running in both those races and to aid former President Trump. We assess the high confidence that Russia President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016. And while the extent and impact of that interference have been debated and downplayed by some, including Trump, Officials accuse Putin of efforts including spreading disinformation on social media and efforts to influence people close to Trump, as well as cyber operations against both the Republican and Democratic parties and the release of hacked data to the public. In Europe, too, top officials have accused Russia of using its influence to sway elections across the continent using a variety of strategies, including denigrating politicians and spreading misinformation to voters. So this is really nothing new. It's part of an ongoing campaign that has been successful in to varying degrees. And uh, the threat that was made recently that we were going to experience, we any country that opposes what Russia is doing, something we have never experienced in our history Uh, is a rather daunting consideration uh, if you look at what Russia under Vladimir Putin has done in the past and is now threatening to do moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up. And also in the second hour, Hank Hanegraaff, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Hank Hanegraaff, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. We'll also uh, review Amazon's new Lord of the Rings series. It's not your J.R.R. Tolkien version. At least that's what those who've seen it are saying. More on that later in the program. I loved what I read on Facebook the other day. Earth is preparing for war. Heaven is preparing for a wedding. Kind of puts things into perspective. We've been talking about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I say that as though they were equal aggressors. But uh, as we consider the fact that uh, war is a common thing on Earth because of our sin nature, we're reminded that this isn't the whole story. So I'm encouraged by that. And I'm also encouraged to pray not only for the Ukrainians who are um, being attacked. I'm praying for the Russians who are compelled to be a part of that attack. I'm praying for Vladimir Putin that his uh, efforts would be uh, prevented from success and that he himself would be humbled and find uh, find faith in Christ. So all of those things um, I'm praying for. Um I noted also a couple of uh, stories on what's happening in the church among evangelicals and believers uh, in the country. It says um, in one article that Russia keeps punishing evangelicals in Crimea. Last year, there was an uptick in fines to Protestants and fellow religious minorities in the region annexed from Ukraine. 
This may give us some idea of what to expect in the days ahead if Russia does, in fact, occupy the country. Well, Kate Shellnut and uh, uh, Forum 18 reported that since Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula from uh, Ukraine in 2014, one of the central points of conflict in the current clash between the two countries, Protestant Christians in the territory have faced greater government penalties for practicing their faith. There's a real competition between Orthodox uh, Russian faith and anything outside of it. Like elsewhere in Russia, meeting together to sing and read scripture or letting others know about a church gathering puts believers at risk under the strict 2016 anti-evangelism law. Last year, authorities prosecuted 23 cases of such activity in Crimea, up from 13 the year before. That's according to Forum 18, which tracks religious freedom violations in that region. Evangelical Protestants in Crimea received the most penalties. At least nine people from Pentecostal, Baptist and other Protestant churches were fined for missionary activity as well. Four of those uh, cases involved members of the Potter's House, a Protestant congregation in Severestpool, a southern port and the largest city in Crimea. The pastor leads efforts to proclaim the gospel online and in the streets. His Twitter feed features clips of an Easter procession and service, new home Bible groups, ministry to former drug addicts and open air evangelism. Even when um, he came under uh, down rather with COVID-19, he continued to preach over video. But that activity has also gotten his church in trouble. He and fellow pastors have uh, been fined in 2021 for leading services. One of the Potter's House members was fined twice for performing music, praying, and participating in church gatherings, in part because authorities were uh, tipped off by YouTube and social media posts. Well, the Christians tried to appeal the charges, but none of the cases brought by the police center for countering extremism have been overturned, uh, Forum 18 reports. Well, it goes on from there to give you just some idea of what Ukraine might experience, what the Ukraine church might experience under Russian rule. Also, I read an article uh, Robert Briggs uh, wrote. Uh, this, I believe, was on um, the, the Christian. Oh, I can't think of the, the outlet. It'll come to me in just a minute. It's the Christian Post. Um, on recent Sunday mornings in Ukraine, whispered reports have run through the churches. The soldiers on the eastern border have portable rocket launchers. Um, uh, one boy was shot in the leg. They say he won't walk again. Did you know the Kovals left? Some questions have gone unspoken. Will we uh, be here again next week? These are some of the conversations taking place on Sunday mornings. Well, yesterday, those whispers became cries of a, as a series of missiles hit near Kiev. The invasion puts Ukraine churches at the heart of the conflict. As Christian leaders contend with people's despair and uncertainty, they're standing united and strong, and they're helping Ukrainians find hope in God's word. As the head of the American Bible Society, and this is Robert Briggs, I've been in close contact with my friends and counterparts uh, who serve as the Deputy General Secretary of Ukrainian Bible Society. Over the past few months, uh, this leader has shared reports that are hard to read. Mothers wailing for their sons outside of hospitals, children who won't remember their father's faces, thousands of people feeling hopeless and afraid. But uh, he has noted something else, too. Church leaders working together for peace and people seeking out the hope of Scripture. Um, in one church, people are fearful they will uh, lose everything. In response, he's been sharing Psalm 31 with everyone searching for reassurance. He reports that people are often surprised to hear words that, according to them, sound like they could have been written 
in Kiev in 2022. Praise be the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. That's verse 21. Well, as people grapple with the unknown, many are experiencing the Bible's message for the first time. According to um, Anitlov, uh, priests and pastors over the past weeks have been flocking to the Bible Society store in Kiev to buy Bibles. Demand is so high that they've run out of copies. Uh, he says, um, this is one of their biggest challenges. We need Bibles. Another resource offered by the church in Ukraine is Bible-based trauma healing. Although it was introduced only six years ago, the program has been incredibly effective, especially for family members of those killed in the conflict with Russia. It allows community leaders to guide small groups of people through a restorative process. Now that it's available in so many churches across the country, the Ukrainian Bible Society can't keep up with the request for resources and training. What then can we do to help? Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine need Bibles for people searching for comfort in troubled times. They need trauma healing resources to provide the balm of Scripture, and they need us to intercede for them. These are some of the things that are being observed from inside the country and some things that are being observed from outside. I wanted to offer in these final couple of moments before our interview with Hank Hanegraaff a prayer for the nation of Ukraine. And as we intercede for them, um, we know that God hears us and we ask that he would intervene on their behalf. O Lord God of infinite mercy, we humbly implore you to look down on the men, women and children of the Ukraine now engaged in war. Look in mercy on those immediately exposed to peril. Comfort the victims, relieve the suffering of the wounded and show mercy to the dying. According to your good and gracious will, remove the causes and occasions of this war and restore peace among the nations. Lord of the nations and God of all peace, pour out your spirit in rich measures on those in high places and low who continue to seek peace during this time of war. Protect them from evil and violence. Open their eyes, their mouths and their hearts to pursue the goal of peace. Bring an end to the swords of war that shatter the the Ukraine and which shake the vulnerable with fear. Protect those who serve to defend the innocent. Protect and cover your brothers and sisters in faith. May your peace and supernatural courage empower them to be witness to your power and perseverance. As kingdoms look for wisdom, hope, and resolve, may they look to you as the ultimate source and solution to all the devastating uh, ripples of sin and evil. May you shine your glory in the darkness of this crisis. May your kingdom come and your will be done in the Ukraine as it is in heaven. And I pray for those in Russia, those military personnel who are under orders. I pray that they too, that their hearts would come to see Christ. I'm reminded of uh, watching the uh, the Voice of the Martyrs um, movie on the wife of the of the leader of Voice of the Martyrs and how she came to love her enemies and that resulted in many coming to faith. Let's pray for the people of Ukraine and all who are decision makers that they would seek peace and justice and do right. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am so delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Hank Hanegraaff about his latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Well, Hank Hanegraaff has always argued passionately for the importance of biblical truth and biblical understanding. And through his long-running radio show, Bible Answer Man, his name has become synonymous with commitment to both theological rigor and an explanation of theological truth that is digestible for the lay believer. Well, in the 
first half of his latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life, he lays out the clear case for the importance of biblical truth in our time. In the unexpected second half, he explores biblical truth not as an end in itself, but as a pathway to illuminate truth, the personhood of God. Well, both um, precision and compassion are his approach, and the Bible is a map, he says, that God has given us to draw deeper into himself by focusing on six ideas, which we will talk about. Well, Hank Hanegraaff serves as the president and chairman of the board of the North Carolina-based Christian Research Institute. He's also host of a nationally syndicated radio broadcast, which is heard daily across the United States and Canada and around the world via the Internet at Equip.org. He is the author of more than 20 books, widely regarded as one of the world's leading Christian authors and apologists, uh, recognized um, uh, all around the world. I'm just delighted to welcome Hank Hanegraaff to the program to talk about his latest book, Truth Matters, the unex- uh, life matters more, the unexpected beauty of an authentic Christian life. Hank Hanegraaff, thank you so much for joining us. It is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we're talking about one book, but we're really talking about two books that relate very closely to one another, that present a balanced view of the Christian life um, that I think might surprise some of our, our listeners in that the second half of the book focuses on a different aspect, but an essential aspect of the Christian life. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, in fact, uh, I can tell you read the book. <laughs> the <laughs> characterization, but yeah, you know, for most of my life, I've debated truth, I've defended truth, I've defined truth, but the map is not the territory, nor is the menu the meal. The, the, the menu is designed to lead you into an experience with food, and that is precisely what I'm talking about in the second half of the book, how we can experience union with God, how we can participate in the very energies of God. You think about putting a pot in a kiln. The pot absorbs the energy of the fire. It becomes red hot in the process. It doesn't become the fire, but it absorbs the energies of the fire, and that's precisely what I'm talking about in the second half of the book, how we can experience intimacy with God, how we can experience fellowship in the Holy Trinity. And this is something to be experienced rather than explained. It's not a prohibition upon knowledge, but it is the transcending of knowledge. It's the transcending of all philosophical speculation. And that is really, and I love a quote by Vladimir Lossky, he said that Christian theology is always in the last resort a means, it's a unity of knowledge that subserves an end which transcends all knowledge, and that ultimate end is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about union with God or deification. Now, I've written about deification, as you well know, and deification in the cultic sense is something that we don't want to Mm -hmm. participate in as Christians. But what we do want to participate in is what Peter talks about in his second letter. He talks about being a partaker of the divine nature, which is something that we were created to do. I think it's it's, uh, much easier for some of us to read the first half of the book, to aspire to an understanding and knowledge of the truths in Scripture, and to stop there, missing essentially, as the second part of your book points out, really the whole point. 
Yes, and, and, and this is, again, to quote Vladimir Lasky, one of the favorite quotes that I actually have inscribed on the back cover of the book, where he says that after the fall, human history is a history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. But the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the rescued to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. Mm. Now, think about the metaphor. If you're on the Titanic and you're rescued, you'd be very, very grateful. But you don't want to stay in the port of salvation. You want to stay at the place of rescue. You want to continue on. And that's precisely what I'm writing about in this book. We were created for union with God. And so often we think that the essence of the Christian life is transactional. I pray a prayer. I have a card that gets me out of hell, gets me into heaven. And that's the extent of it. But Christ came to give us life that is life to the full, and it's something we can experience in the present. Now, it's something that we will experience for all eternity as well, and it's an ongoing experience from one glory to another with unveiled face, uh, to allude to how Paul puts it. But this is something that we can experience now, and I think most of us are missing that. And I could say for the better part of my life, I was missing that as well. Hmm. Now, what brought you to write these two books in one that emphasizes the necessity of moving, uh, not abandoning truth, but moving um, to a fuller truth that that re- uh, results in a relationship that is deepening and growing with the God who is the source of all truth? Yeah, interestingly enough, it, it started as a result of taking a stand for truth. Uh, there was a group that we thought uh, was at best cultic, and uh, in meeting with the leaders of that group, uh, I thought that we were wrong. And in the process of, of, of saying we were wrong, standing for truth became my portal into life. I traveled uh, to places in Asia where I met people that did not have a modicum of the theological acumen that I have gained over many years of doing the Bible Answer Man broadcast, but they were experiencing something that I was not experiencing. And I remember flying home from China Mm. on one of my trips and staring off into the clouds and wondering, am I even a Christian? It's it's a sort of analogous to what happened to Aquinas. Uh, I don't know if you know the story, yes. but on December 6, 1273, I think it was, Thomas Aquinas had a Eucharistic experience. Now, this is the man that wrote the Summa, uh, one of the greatest theological works of all time. But he had a Eucharistic experience on that particular morning that absolutely rewired his circuits. He's told his Secretary Reginald, I can write no more. Everything I've done so far seems to me as to be so much straw. And I had a similar experience. It was not quite as profound and instantaneous as the experience that's communicated by Thomas Aquinas, but it was that kind of experience as well. I had a Eucharistic experience, an experience with the energies of God that rewired my circuits. Mm. Now, let's talk about the first part of the book before I think we land in the second part. Truth matters. It still matters. It will always matter. How should we approach our desire to understand the truth as revealed in Scripture that ultimately leads us into a deeper relationship uh, with the God of the universe? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked the question that uh, that, that you just did in the way that you asked it, because it, it's so important for us not to be dichotomaniacs. Uh, which is to say, Jesus Christ not only said he was the way to the Father, but he was 
the truth and the life. And so you, you can't separate one from the other. It's so important for Christians to know the truth, to go back to the illustration of uh, a menu and a meal. If you have the wrong menu, the meal may well be toxic. So you have to have truth. It's important for us to understand the God who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence. it's, it's, It's important for us to have a proper apprehension of that. It's important for us to be able to read the Bible for all its substantial worth. It's important for us to understand the difference between a Christian worldview and a pagan worldview, or a worldview that is... Uh, rooted in cultic theology or the the world of the occult. So truth really, really matters, and it particularly matters in a pro-truth culture where people say truth is what I think it is, as opposed to being objective verity. So it's so critical that we have the truth about who God is. I mean, you think about Jesus Christ asking the mother of all questions, who do you say that I am? If you have the wrong answer to that question, if you say, well, you're just an avatar or a messenger, or uh, you're the spirit brother of Lucifer, and then you have the wrong God. So it's very important that the Christian ethic is focused and grounded in substantial truth. We're talking with Hank Hanegraaff, his latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments and perhaps park on the second half of his book, uh, which is titled Life Matters More. And uh, I, I think we'll find it rather fascinating to consider this aspect from the Bible answer man of a life lived uh, in relationship to God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Hank Hanegraaff, most widely known as the Bible Answer Man, author of many books. Today we're talking about his latest, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Now, you mentioned a, a few moments ago um, that you began to live an authentic Christian life, which isn't to suggest that you were not a, a follower of Jesus before, but how did life change once you began to truly live an authentic Christian life? And what, what differences um, did, uh, did you have to face in order to live that more authentic Christian life? Well, I think the first thing that should be said in response to that question is the importance of the Church. Uh, It has been well said by the the Church Fathers that you cannot have God as your Father without having the Church as your Mother. And so there has to be an authentic experience within the context of the Eucharistic Assembly— And I call the Church a Eucharistic Assembly because one of the things I think that we miss in modern-day Christianity is the import of the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving meal or communion or the Lord's Table, as it's variously called. For 1,500 years, in fact, through the time of Martin Luther, the Eucharist or communion was always considered to be the real presence of Christ. Therefore, within the context of the Church, when you partook of the Eucharist, you were not merely partaking of a memorial or a remembrance. You were partaking of Christ. 
you are partaking of something that is not merely biological in terms of the elements, but zoetic in terms of spiritual energy that's transformational, because there's a mingling then of the divine and the human energies. Now, when I say mingling, I'm not saying that the divine is somehow or other coalesced with the human. They each retain their own properties. Uh, It's like putting a pot in a kiln. The pot takes on the energy or the fire of that kiln, but it doesn't become the fire. It participates in the energies, and those energies are transformational. I mean, you think about the pot becoming red hot, and someone coming in contact with that pot is also affected by it. The same thing is true when you partake of the divine energies that are offered to us through the Thanksgiving meal, through the real presence of Christ. And I have the temerity or the boldness to say this because, again, this was the belief of the Church right through the time of Martin Luther. And I think that it is arrogant for us in the 21st century to suddenly say what the Church believed for 1,600 years is no longer valid in the present. It is valid, and it's not only valid, it's transformational. But this is only one It is the chief one, but it is only one of the graces by which we can experience not just salvation, but sonship. So salvation is much more than people ever thought it could be. It's not being merely saved from sin. It's being saved for sonship, to be divinely adopted sons and daughters of God. So forgiveness becomes the precondition for God's greater gift, and that gift is a gift that will last beyond our death. It's the gift of divine life. And all of this, and it would take uh, some explanation, as I do in the book, but all of this gets back to anthropology. The fact that God in the Garden of Eden created Adam um, in the genesis of his life, meaning that just as a child has potential and will grow to be an adult, so Adam is created so that he can grow and develop and become more and more like God excluding participation in the essence of God. We can participate in the energies of God, but not in the essence of God. We can never become what God is by nature. But we can ascend the, uh, the mountain of Eden, as it were, to partake of the tree of life, and that tree of life is now available to us through the medicine of immortality that I just described with respect to the Eucharist, but the other graces that are supplied to the Church. You write that we cheat ourselves of real truth when we elevate the message above the messenger. And that seems to me to be what you're describing, that truth alone is not sufficient to experience and enjoy all that God intends for us, in that um, the, the truth that is revealed is in order that we might enjoy the kind of intimate relationship that you've been describing, that authentic yeah. relationship. Yeah, well, you just nailed it. I mean, deification is far greater than knowing about God as a logical truth proposition. It's the experience of life and all attempts to understand the Christian message from a solely rational perspective remain partial and inadequate. And and this is the message that I'm trying to get through 
in the book. But one of the things that I do in the book uh, is, is, is I, I make sure to point out that there has to be an answer to the Lord's high priestly prayer that we all may be as one, which is to say, before I had my own experience, which, which really started quite a number of years ago, but it's been progressive, I was still a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and I have discovered one thing through my life as a Christian, uh, particularly in Christian ministry, that God has his people in many, many different places and in many different stages of growth and stages of deification. And so one of the things I do in the book is I call for fusion. Which is to say that the church continues to fissure, but I'm looking for an answer to the Lord's high priestly prayer that we all may be as one. Jesus prayed that prayer, and then he says, so that the world might believe that you sent me. Now, when we think about oneness within the body of Christ, which is so fractured, we think that's an impossible dream. But who are we as specks of dust to question the one who created that dust? Christ prayed the Lord's high priestly prayer chronicled in John chapter 17, and we need to work towards fusion within the body of Christ and, 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 and in that sense, learn together. So it's not a point of me saying, look, I've written this book, I've come to a knowledge that most people don't have, an experience that most... No, it's not that at all. It's growing together in love and grace and goodness and in the glory of God. Mm. Well, the book, once again, is titled Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life, written by my guest, Hank Hanegraaff, also known as the Bible Answer Man. I find it absolutely fascinating, and you're right. I think you buy one book, but you get two books in the process that give a, a full picture of the abundant life that we are called to, uh, that that begins with an understanding and regard for truth, but... Um, develops into a much deeper relationship and walk with God. Thank you so much for your efforts in the book, but also for being with us here tonight. Well, thanks for the interview. It's always a pleasure to be with a professional. And when someone interviews you, you can always tell the difference between a good interview and one that's not, <laughs> not so good. And you are definitely a professional, so it's a pleasure being on with you. Well, thank you so much. Once again, the book is titled Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Really an interesting um, uh, chronicle of the uh, the softening, if you will, of the Bible answer man. So anyway, a great book. Uh, Thomas Nelson is the publisher. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I wanted to review Lord of the Rings. It's a new series that's premiering on Amazon You might raise one eyebrow. Is Amazon going to be able to pull that off? Well, according to Douglas Blair, who reviewed uh, the upcoming new Lord of the Rings, the biggest threat facing Middle Earth is no longer Sauron or Morgoth, but Jeff Bezos. Well, Amazon released the trailer for its new Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power series during the Super Bowl, and the product advertised doesn't inspire confidence. He points out that the series is set long before Frodo and the Fellowship of the Ring marched across Middle-earth and focuses on an entirely new cast of characters we've never seen before on screen. Some of these characters were invented by J.R.R. Tolkien and come from the reaches of his extensive writing. Concerningly, others are invented out of whole cloth made specifically for this show. 
that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing unless, well, it's a bad thing. Well, in the series, um, Namvet uh, is a beardless black woman. I'm glad she's beardless. In other contexts, that could be perfectly fine casting choice. But this is the Lord of the Rings where Tolkien's lore is quite clear. There is not um, what a dwarf looks like. Well, the creators of uh, Rings of Power have made it clear why they made the choice. In an interview with Vanity Fair, the show's executive producer, Lindsay Weber, said, It felt only natural to us that an adaptation of Tolkien's work would reflect what the world actually looks like. Which world are we talking about now? I'm a little confused. What the world actually looks like. Now, is it the world he invented, where there are very specific features, or not? Which world? Why? Our modern world, of course. Well, in the views of the... uh, a producer like Weber, Middle Earth, a world heavily steeped in the ancient mythology of Tolkien's native British Isle and his imagination, should resemble 2022 New York or San Francisco. Diversity must be, uh, well, placed on full display, It uh, even if it doesn't quite fit. Original source uh, material is no longer Essential. Now, she's a dwarf. It doesn't matter that she's black, but she's not wearing a beard. Well, the treatment of established characters isn't much better. Um, Galadriel, an elf depicted by Kate Blanchett in uh, director Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings film trilogy, has had her personality radically shifted. Well, gone is the ethereal and graceful Galadriel from Tolkien's work. She's been replaced by a genetic fantasy warrior, a carbon copy of a million other empowered female characters in today's fantasy landscape. She's no longer distinct. Weber and her team seem to believe that for a female character to be strong, she must be a physically imposing warrior. In other words, she must be a man. Yet Galadriel radiates power in her film and book depictions without the need to make her a man. Well, even worse, when devoted fans of a series like The Lord of the Rings point out issues with these adapted products, they're accused of bigotry for not acquiescing to the butchering of their beloved franchise. Well, Rings of Power is far from the first series to intentionally alienate fans of its progenitor product, but it does constitute a new frontier in the the, um, Sauron-esque invasion of popular culture by some who are more radical on the left. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings represent the bedrock upon which much of modern fantasy can build. George R.R. Martin, author of the immensely popular A Song of Ice and Fire series, that later inspired the HBO show Game of Thrones, has said that he was inspired by Tolkien to write epic fantasy. By capturing Tolkien's work for those uh, who are now producing this new version, the radicals are sending an ominous message to lovers of his creation. We own this now. We will remake it in our image. The Rings of Power appears to be yet another soulless husk devoid of the original love and care that Tolkien infused into his work and with which Jackson crafted his original Lord of the Rings movies. Now, I suppose it shouldn't be all that surprising. We're living in the 21st century. Nothing is sacred, so to speak. Well, ironically, Tolkien's own work seems to depict the radical left's corruption of popular cultural artifacts. In his The Return of the King, his hobbit hero, Frodo, you remember him, He pontificates on the nature of orcs, a race of purely evil creatures sent by big baddie Sauron to reclaim the one ring. The shadow that bred them can only mock, it cannot make, not real new things of its own. I don't think it gave life to orcs, it only ruined them and twisted them. That's a quote from the movie. 
Well, the um, producers of this new version or perversion, depending on your views of Tolkien's work, spreads its ideology not by genuine acts of creation, but by twisting and defiling things people love, the actual characters from that fantasy. Well, Tolkien's work will not be um, the last to be corrupted, but it should be a wake-up call to protect the series fans love. Well, thankfully, this is a fight we're winning. The response to Amazon's trailer has been overwhelmingly negative, and fans are pushing back against the forced diversity and lore inaccuracies. Well, as the wise wizard Gandalf tells us, despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. So the series is set to begin shortly. My guess is they will not revise it. That might have an impact. The Negative response might have an impact on future versions of the series, but for now, it's pretty much going to stay the way they've reproduced it. Well, much of the program today has been focused on the people of Ukraine, the invasion of Russian troops there, the protests in Russia. Lots of arrests have been made there. Russian people, primarily young people, opposed to the war. There are protesters taking place in or protests taking place here in the U.S. as well. But really, for me, the major concern is for the Ukrainian people who are determined to defend their land, but really are outgunned in virtually every way one can imagine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will lose this fight. It does mean, most likely, that it will be a very prolonged effort to regain what was once theirs. Uh, Since 2014, that has been a battle they have been enjoined in, but not uh, through the whole country. Well, I shared a prayer for the nation of Ukraine earlier in the program, and I wanted to close today's program with it as well. As we reflect on the people who just days ago were going about their business, children to school, uh, men and women to their jobs, homemakers providing for their families. And today things have changed rather dramatically. Oh, Lord God of infinite mercy, we humbly implore you to look down on the men, women and children of the Ukraine now engaged in war. Look in mercy on those immediately exposed to peril. Comfort the victims, relieve the suffering of the wounded, and show mercy to the dying. According to your good and gracious will, remove the causes and occasions of this war and restore peace among the nations. Now, this is, under our current circumstances, this is something that only God can do. The sanctions that have been imposed up to this point are insufficient to deter Vladimir Putin, who is bent on reconstituting what was once the great Soviet Union. The prayer continues, Lord of the nations and God of all peace, pour out your spirit in rich measure on those in high places and low who continue to seek peace during this time of war. Protect them from evil and violence. Open their eyes, their mouths and their hearts to pursue the goal of peace. Bring an an end to the swords of war that shatter the Ukraine and which shake the vulnerable with fear. Protect those who serve to defend the innocent. Protect and cover our brothers and sisters in faith. May your peace and supernatural courage empower them to be a witness to your power and perseverance. As kingdoms look for wisdom, hope, and resolve, may they, may they look to you as the ultimate source and solutions to all the devastating ripples of sin and evil. May you shine your glory in this darkness of the crisis. May your kingdom come and your will be done in Ukraine as it is in heaven. It was so difficult to watch men and women whose lives have been utterly shattered by the events that just began, uh, it, it seems, a very short time ago. And I hope that we continue to pray for the, the people of Ukraine, for the church in Ukraine that's clamoring for more Bibles, recognizing that as 
this dark cloud has ascended on or descended on their country. The, the need for ministry and resources has increased. We're going to continue to follow the story. And if there are ways to um, reach into the country with the resources they're asking for, Bibles was at the top of the list, certainly to pray for them. We'll, we'll let you know along the way. A prayer for the nation of Ukraine. I know there are lots of believers all around the globe who are praying for them. But I would encourage us to pray for uh, Vladimir Putin as well. Obviously, we don't want his plan to succeed, but we would love to see him experience a dramatic transformation as the Apostle Paul did and others in Scripture. So I pray that his plans would be thwarted, but that his heart would be turned to Christ and an end would be put to all of this violence. I'm also reminded that a day is coming when we will study and go to war no more. I look forward to that day. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppet for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.